uh, this morning, we will move into um, what is, is technically the next stage of uh, the series that we introduced last week. La- last week, I introduced the fact that it was going to be a hinge message, a message to transport us from where Pastor Keith had uh, planted us for three weeks on proclaiming the excellencies of Christ uh, and moving us into what we will spend uh, this morning and the following six weeks addressing uh, the, the task that Peter outlined for us to not just proclaim, but to abstain as citizens and ambassadors. And to do so, um, we will tackle what we're calling seven deadly sins. And that list of seven deadly sins is, it's not an exhaustive list. It's not even an explicitly biblical list, but it's a list of sins that church history has given to the church to help its people to identify sin in our fight against it. Peter told us last week that we are to abstain from the passions of the flesh because they wage war against our souls. This next, well, this morning included seven weeks as we address uh, this morning, uh, greed. Next week, anger. Then lust, then sloth, gluttony, envy, and finally pride. It might be helpful for you to consider this not just a a list of seven deadly sins, but a list of seven daily sins. Perhaps you can think of other sins that are worse sins than the ones I just listed. The difficulty is, is that I think most of you would find yourself not guilty of the worst sins. What makes these sins so deadly is the fact that they are daily sins. A daily dose injected into our lives is what's going to poison us over the long period of time. And maybe unlike other sins, these are sins that even outsiders recognize the deadly or maybe harmful effects of and decide to try to make war on their own. And before we get into talking about greed in particular, I want to share with you what I have found to be a handful of approaches that people inside and outside of the church use as they fight sin. The first is this, I'll call it the moralizing approach. The moralizing approach essentially says, stop it. We've got a list of good things, a list of bad things, and moralizing says, well, just don't do bad things. Just stop it. It's like the anti-Nike ad, just don't do it. Uh, Google had a motto. What was their motto? Do you remember? It's actually not the same anymore. Um, Don't be evil. This is a moralizing approach. The problem with the moralizing approach is that it ends up making a list of things for us to do. And oftentimes it'll put it on a spectrum. And there are some sins that are really bad. You got to make sure you don't do these. These, just don't let anyone find out about it. In fact, there's often the question, when I was youth pastor, what was the question I heard, particularly once we got into the topics of lust? Well, how far is too far? Just how much sin can I get away with before it's actually bad? How much sin can I get away with before I'm going to get in trouble? And the reason that I think that this moralizing approach is so unhelpful is that anyone who's recognized the addictive powers of sin recognizes that self-discipline in and of itself often does not have the power to do what you don't want to do. It doesn't give you any power. It is strictly behavior-oriented. And so some of us who are successful 
end up feeling proud because we've accomplished the list of what are the unacceptable sins. And those of us who have failed, perhaps over and over and over again, that guilt has caused us to just give up and say, I can't do it. And so we want to not just be a part of the the church crowd that demonizes certain behaviors all the while accepting other behaviors. The second approach that I see some people, and I don't know if I made up this word or not, but it, it gets at the heart and it also looks a little like moralizing is the psychologizing approach. And this is gonna sound a little better because it gets deeper. It gets beyond just the behaviors that we do and gets down to the feelings of, well, how are you feeling? It might ask the question, what's been done to you? And I won't deny the reality that there are forces outside of you who have shaped you in profound ways, have in some ways compelled you to act out in certain behaviors. The psychology world has all kinds of excuses that might end up giving you reason to understand why you are the way you are. Daddy wasn't there. Mommy didn't call you beautiful. You're Irish or Italian or some other stereotypical behavior that would give you reason to grasp, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not actually a bad person. I've just been a victim of something and that's why I am and that's why I do what I do. The problem with this psychologizing approach is that it assumes that all of our problems, all of the evils of this world are out there. I am only a victim of sin and I can't help doing what I do because these things have been acted upon me. And the problem with this in some ways like the other one is is the problem, we don't just do bad things or feel bad things. But deep in our heart, we worship bad things. So that brings us to the approach that I want to look at both this morning and for the rest of the series. And this gospel approach to fighting sin is different from moralizing, different from psychologizing, because it's going to get down deep into the heart of the matter. If you ever find yourself in Charlie's office, you might end up um, hearing him say something like this. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. Jesus says, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. We live, we think, we feel out of the overflow of the heart. And so for us to battle sin in a biblical way, what we need is a new heart. And for that reason, I want to pray for us as we get ready uh, to uh, address this issue of joy versus greed. So would you pray with me? Father, we believe that you are the ultimate reality of this world. And this morning, we want to have you reorient our souls around a reality so that we might see you clearly and then rejoice in you fully. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would open our eyes to remember and rejoice in the good news of your kingdom that you would help us to see more clearly the riches of our inheritance in Christ, cling closer to the promises that you have for us in the future. I pray that everything this morning, whether it's this time in your word 
or the, the songs that we've sung, that there would be a kind of truth that would transform us from one degree of glory to another. Lord, open our eyes this morning to help us become the citizens and ambassadors you've made us to be. I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I would love for you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be in verses 19 through 24. But to set that verse in context, I'll give you a little bit of background. Jesus, we are, we are right on the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 4, we see that Jesus is tempted by the devil uh, and then begins his public ministry. And he begins his public ministry with these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, Peter might say, abstain from the sinful passions of your flesh. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. He says, there's a new kingdom and you are citizens and ambassadors of it. And after picking a handful of disciples to follow him, it says that he went throughout the area teaching and preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God or good, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This morning, we will do, in essence, what Jesus is doing because we're going to continue in the very next section. The next section after that chapter four is the beginning of what's typically called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon that we have of Jesus. And within it, what he's doing is he's encouraging the church to do what he preached, to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In some ways, he's saying, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what my kingdom values. This is how people, citizens in God's kingdom, conduct themselves. And so we'll pick it up in verse 19 of Matthew 6. Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there is the desires, or there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Now, if you're following along in the note outline, We'll follow three steps. First, defining greed, then discovering greed, and then destroying greed before we get into some takeaways. So maybe it would be helpful for us as we define greed to first of all de define what it's not. And so greed is not the possession of money. Greed is not the possession of money. Jesus is not telling us that only those who are rich or only those who are poor are going to be tempted by greed. You can be a part of the 1% and not be greedy. And you can be living paycheck to paycheck 
and be filled with all kinds of greed. Jesus is helping us to see that it's not right or wrong in God's eyes to be rich or poor. Greed is not in the possession of money. But he also says that greed is not a love of money. When God created all things, what did he call it? And he created everything and he said it was good. Jesus is not encouraging us to call good things bad. The good things that you have are gifts from a kind father in heaven. He gave that to you and he's not calling you to hate the things that God has given you. And yet with that little part of the outline, I'm hoping that there's something unsettling in you as you think, well, Brandon, of course greed is the love of money. I know a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which would say that, well, I'll just show it to you so that you can uh, see it. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And what I'm glad that you picked up on that because uh, there are some people who would say that money is the root of all evils. And this verse is helping us to see, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with necessarily money. It's the love of money. What I want to do, though, is I want to provide us a little bit more nuance into our definition. And to do so, what we do is we don't just pick a text out of the scriptures, but we look at where its context is. And so let's read 1 Timothy 6. And go back into nine. Paul says to Timothy, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pangs. There's a desire component to greed. And I, I don't know that I just want to say that greed is the love of money because what Paul is helping Timothy to say is that it's a particular type of love. It's a craving kind of love. It's, a, it's, a kind, it's connected to the desire. And so I have a, a definition that we can use for this morning. There are probably many ways that you could define it, but for our purposes, I think that Jesus is helping us to see that greed is the excessive desire for money. The excessive desire for money. St. Augustine might say that it's a disordered love of money. St. Augustine saw sin as a list of disordered loves. We love this more than this, and it's disordered because we should love this more than we love this. We love both, but when it comes to what is more important, we love more important things than less important things. So St. Augustine might say greed is an in, uh, might say it's a disordered love of money. If you find yourself in Charlie's office, Charlie loves to use the expression inordinate desire. So he might say it's not an excessive desire, Brandon, it's more of an inordinate desire for money. With that definition, I think that we can see that Jesus wants us to see that greed is more of a worship disorder before it's a behavior disorder. Jesus compares money to a master in verse 24. And he says that you cannot serve God and money. And I think to myself, how, how does someone actually serve money? How does someone serve or be enslaved 
to money. And it might be helpful to consider how you might serve God. When we serve God, we go to God and we seek God to supply us with the desires of our hearts, to have him fill us up so that we might be satisfied. We go to him like a a fountain of living water so that we can drink. We go to him as one who gives bread so that we might be filled and nourished. There's a way for us to do that with money. We can go to money and ask money to give us the desires of our heart. This split is the choice. You can either go to God or you can go to money. The difficult thing about greed is that if I define it as the excessive desire for money, at what point in this spectrum do we recognize that we have tipped the scales and have moved into defining or moved, uh, moved into desiring money more than God? Now, what I want to say is before we get into discovering greed, you might be tempted to think that identifying greed is going to be simple. And I think that might be the case because there are certain characters that have been personified for us in literature or in movies uh, that would give you the idea that it's easy to see someone who's greedy. It might be Ebenezer Scrooge. You can have that miserly old man who hoards his money, mistreats his servants, and we can all point to Ebenezer Scrooge and say, that man is a greedy man. Or if you are a uh, Hobbit fan, you might be thinking of smog. You might be thinking that greed is this idea that you are a violent dragon sitting on your golden pile and willing to kill and attack anyone who would risk coming and taking what's yours. And you think, that is a greedy dragon. Or if you've read uh, some of the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian, there's a character, he's actually one of my favorite ones. Uh, his name is Eustace, Eustace and I, I, I don't like him at the beginning because he's this weaselly cousin uh, of, of the, the main characters in the book. And we see him actually turn into a dragon as he's tempted by greed, he becomes that beast. And we think, aha, see? What I want to help us with this morning and with really the rest of these sins is that when we personify greed or any of these sins in their most extreme expression, it can be difficult for us to look in the mirror and to consider whether or not we look like an Ebenezer Scrooge or a dragon. And when you look in the mirror, if you don't see Scrooge or you don't see a dragon, you might conclude that you are not tempted by this passion of the flesh. Jesus is going to help us to see why greed is so difficult to discover because he's going to give us um, what feels like a non sequitur. I don't know if you felt that while I was reading 19 through 24. 19 through um, 21 seems like Jesus is talking about money. Verse 24 sounds like he's talking about money. What's he doing in verses 22 and 23 with all of this light and lamp talk? You can read it here. I'll read it again. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your whole eye is, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. I think Jesus is trying to get us to see is that greed comes with a blindfold. 
one of the reasons that it's difficult to see is that when greed bites you, it bites you and blinds you. I don't know if you've ever recognized why it's sometimes difficult for you to know when you've been bitten by a mosquito. Uh, you obviously know at the end because you've got this little bump and it itches. But how often do you see the mosquito actually on your skin and get it? it it's rare. And one of the reasons is that it knows that if it bites you, you are going to swat it away before it can suck any blood from you. So what it does is numb your skin first. And when it's numbed your skin, then it's free to suck all of the life out of you until it pops or flies away. Greed is a little like that. It numbs you so that you can't see it. And maybe just so you can see why I think this is one of the deadly components to greed. I want to show uh, a picture. And uh, in this picture, there is a leopard. And I'll give just a little bit of time for you to see the leopard. For those of you who are in the front rows, you have an advantage. For those of you who are online, uh, you probably have an advantage. Uh, I tested it out at the very beginning of the time this morning, and it is difficult to see. But it is right here. Uh, dead center, one-third of the way up. There's its head, there's its body, there's its tail. I think I might have a zoomed-in picture of it. There it is. Maybe it's easier for you to see there. What makes this leopard so deadly? It's hard to see. That's why your husband's spending hundreds of dollars on scent-hiding camo. He knows that his success as a hunter is related to the fact that other things won't be able to see him before it's too late. Greed comes with a blindfold. Greed can camouflage itself so that you don't see it. And when you don't see it, it's free to be doing its damage upon us. What makes it maybe even more difficult is I might say that greed can hide or camouflage itself behind virtuous veneers. And I put virtuous in parentheses because I don't know that they're actually virtuous. And what I mean is that there are certain words that we can use to disguise the fact that we are greedy. We can even deceive ourselves and say we're not greedy by saying, I'm not greedy, I'm just a hard worker. There are a lot of people who work hard in Lancaster County, maybe because we've got that uh, Protestant work ethic. Nothing wrong with working hard. I think that's a great virtue in and of itself, but it is possible for us to be deceived by greed, be blinded by greed, and then call hard work a virtue when it's really an expression of our greed. We see that money is the ticket to my heart's desires, and the best way for me to get money is to work hard. The harder I work, the more money I get. And then my God of money, my master of money can deliver to me all the things that money can buy. You might end up saying, uh, if you've been part of Dave Ramsey's, I'm living like no one else now so I can live like no one else in the future. And I'm not knocking Dave Ramsey. He does good work to help people get out from the slavery of debt. The problem is, is that just as greed can get you into credit card debt, 
It can sometimes be greed that gets you out of it. You discipline yourself with greed, feeding that monster of greed so that one day you can live like no one else. So you become greedy with your money to get out of debt, which is a good thing so that you can spend it all on yourself in the future. It's not always bad. It's not bad to get out of debt, but it might be a virtuous veneer for us. You might say, well, Brendan, I've got a financial advisor because I want to be a responsible husband, uh, care and provide for my family, and uh, look forward to my retirement and and caring for my wife. And I want to say, that is a wise, prudent thing to do. To, To know where your finances are, know how you might be able to use every dollar, be a good steward of it, so that you can provide for your family. That is, you're not going to say, you're not going to hear me say that that's wrong. What I want to say is that, is it possible that we can twist that virtuous language into something greedy? If you don't believe me, um, ask Walter White what that kind of desire to care for your family financially might end up causing you to do. What I think Jesus is telling us to do is to trace our treasures in order to find out where our heart is. We can deceive ourselves with virtuous language. And Jesus says, don't look just at the behavior that you're doing. But to trace why are you spending money the way you're spending money? What is it that you want? I don't know that I buy into the concept that money can't buy happiness. You've heard that expression before, yeah? Money can't buy happiness. We tell ourselves that all the time. And yet, I have at least three reasons why I think, well, money might be able to buy happiness. You know why? It can buy me a a boat. It can buy me a truck to pull it. It can buy me a Yeti 110 iced up with some Coca-Cola. And Yetis are expensive. But what are you getting when you get a Yeti? A week's worth of ice. You don't need a week's worth of ice. What do you need? Why are you buying a Yeti? Well, all the cool kids have Yetis. All of the people that I want to be like have Yetis. And if I want to be cool, what do I need to do? I need to buy the Yeti. Why do you buy a Mercedes? First in class safety. Luxury. There's nothing wrong with being safe. There's nothing wrong with being comfortable but we should back up from a second and say that money can buy a lot of the things that we want. It can buy the approval of others. It can buy comfort. It can buy security and safety. Jesus is saying, when you are buying the things, trace out what you're actually buying because advertisements aren't just selling selling products, they're selling promises. And greed has the promise of joy. It's not until we can trace our hearts deep down into our hearts to really consider where we've placed our hope. Have we placed our hope in God or have we placed our hope in treasures on earth? If you trace your treasures, where you spend your money, and maybe this is the first step for you. You don't actually know where you spend your money. You don't have a budget. The first step for you, figure out where your money's going. 
Grab hold of those receipts, put them in a spreadsheet document. Maybe you use, I use YNAB. YNAB stands for you need a budget, uh, and I do, and I use it because I believe that it helps me to figure out where's my money going. And when I'm able to analyze my checkbook, I can see what am I putting my hope in? Discovering greed. Now, before we get into destroying greed, what I want to say is that I'm hoping that this series might be in some sense a warning for you. That it might open your eyes and say, wait, there's a leopard standing behind you. That would be a helpful warning to hear. That would give you maybe a a sober understanding of reality so that you then might act better. There's a story in the Bible where I feel like this whole difficulty of sin could have been avoided if just somebody had given him a warning. If somebody would have simply said, Jacob, wake up, that's not Rachel. Can you see how that would have been a tremendous blessing to Jacob in that moment to realize that he had not gone to bed with his wife, but had gone to bed with his sister-in-law, Leah. Oh, that would have been so helpful to at least have a warning The difficulty is is that a warning is not going to change your heart. A a warning might sober you up. Maybe some of the reasons that you have people come, have that come to Jesus moment is that they they hit rock bottom and that rock bottom wakens them. It it, it awakens them to, they now sober up and now they can see clearly. They discover the scenario. But what if once Jacob was, Awaken, and he could now see because he wasn't in that dark tent. What would we say if Jacob went back into bed with Leah? We would say, does, does he even love his wife? Does he even love Rachel? If when we're wakened to greed and its destructive effects, if there's not a other love that would draw us away from this other lover. We've not done the job. So what we need to do is provide more than just a warning, which brings us into the last section, discovering greed. Instead of just providing defense, we need to go on the offense. John Owen has a line that I love uh, to quote. It's simple to say, we need to be killing sin or it will be killing us. So to go on the offense, Jesus is going to provide us with three um, truths that will help us in our battle against greed. And the first is this. He's essentially saying good things don't last. When he's talking about storing our treasures in heaven rather than on earth, he, he says that the things on earth, the treasures on earth, they're not durable. They may deliver the kind of comfort or approval or security for a moment, but they are fleeting. Moths will come in and eat them. Rust will come in and deteriorate them. Thieves will just come in and steal it. And the same is true with all of our treasures on earth. Everything that you own is moments from being transitioned from treasure to trash. You purchase things and it brings you that lift. You, you fall in victim to Apple's marketing and you get that new iPhone, and you feel smarter, or you feel cooler, or you feel more creative, how long does that last? 
How many of us are as excited about our Christmas presents today as we were three weeks ago? We all recognize that even though joy is promised by greed and materialism, the materials start to deteriorate and fade. Everything that you have is moments away from becoming trash. It doesn't matter. The Mona Lisa's eventually falling apart. And you might do a good job of passing your junk on to your kids or to your grandkids, but I can tell you at some point that junk's getting thrown out. And even if it is valuable and insanely durable, eventually death's grip is going to come and pry it from your hands. It's going to come in like a thief and steal what is most important to you. Jesus wants us to see good things don't last. This is one of our steps in unmasking the deficiencies of greed, that greed might promise joy, but it's an inferior joy. It won't last. Jesus is also telling us that money's a bad God. He makes that comparison in 24. You have to make a decision. Are you going to be a slave to God or a slave to money? Are you going to worship God or are you going to worship money? Are you going to go to God to find the desires of your heart be met or are you going to go to money and all of the things that money can buy and trust money for your security, for your comfort, for your approval? One of the reasons I know that Jesus is saying that money is a bad God is because if you read verses 25 through 34 in that same chapter, Jesus talks about the dangers of money and how it's an inferior God. And then he goes on and says, therefore, don't be anxious. He's saying, if you believed God was your ultimate treasure, if you believed God was more valuable to you than money and trusted him rather than trusting money, if your desire was for God rather than a desire for money, you'd have no reason to be anxious. One of the ways that you can maybe find or discover greed in your heart is if you are anxious about, about finances, you've put your trust in money to be your God, the one who supplies what you need. What Jesus ultimately is giving us is a weapon to fight against greed by saying, we fight greed with a superior satisfaction in God above all things. We fight we fight greed with a superior satisfaction in God. Jesus reveals that the power to release greed's grip on our souls is to loosen our grip on all of the things on earth. Jesus ends up telling a parable. It's probably the shortest one in the Bible. Matthew thirteen forty four. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And you could probably just stop there, stop reading and just embrace that truth. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. But he goes on and says, it's a treasure hidden in a field. And a treasure hidden in a field. A man finds it. When he finds it, covers it up. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys that field. What gave this man the power to let his grip go on all of his earthly possessions? 
in his joy, he found something that was superior to everything that he had. And so it is not foolish for us to let go of what we cannot keep so that we might gain what we cannot lose. Jesus says it's, it's wise for us. In fact, it's for our joy to fight greed. We fight greed with a superior joy, I might say, in God rather than God's things. That's kind of my big point, is that the battle against greed and materialism is won by treasuring the riches of our inheritance in Christ and trusting in the promises of God's loving hand. If you have found an impulse of greed in your soul, a desire for you to trust money rather than God, one of the steps for you might be to simply know what are your riches in Christ. If your grasp of the gospel as good news is millimeters deep, it is not going to be hard for greed to show you something better. We can all fall victim to the advertising and promises of treasures in this world. And if our eyes see treasures on earth as wonderful and our picture of the gospel is small, it's no wonder that we are driven to greed. We see that's where the greatest satisfaction is. What we need to do is to trust the promises of God and treasure the riches that we have in Christ. So that might be your first step to recognize what are your riches in Christ. We sing about them. In fact, Keystone is um, writing our own songs. That first song that we sang uh, is uh, not out on JTL right now. Uh, the reason is because we wrote it. Keystone has long often said that we want to sing our theology and we've been relying on other theologians to uh, give us songs to sing. And we, what we want to do is we want to figure out what do the scriptures say? What are the treasures for us in Christ? And then hold them up for our congregation to not just sing along to the tune, but to rejoice in the truth. So treasure the truths, the riches that are ours in Christ. And the second thing that you might do is to hold on to or cling to the promises that God has given you to trust and treasure if you don't know the promises of God, that's one of the reasons that we preach from the scriptures week in, week out. We want to fill you with certain truths. The truth that God will never leave you nor forsake you. The truth that God is a loving father in heaven who loves to give good gifts to his children. The one who says, if you come and knock, I will answer. That he will supply you with every good thing for life and ministry, that he won't withhold any good from you. There are promises in the scriptures that if you clung to would seem so much more sweeter than anything money could supply you with. That brings me into um, a takeaway, and we'll spend the last five minutes or so on this topic. Generosity is not a power you have in and of yourself you are only free to be generous once money is no longer your God. And so the first step for us is to trust and treasure God more than money. But one of the ways that you can tell whether money has lost its grip on you is if you end up living in God's kingdom as one of his citizens. Because citizens in God's kingdom live as generous stewards. 
one of the marks of a citizen who has rejected the God of money and embraced the God of the universe is that we are free to be generous stewards of God's money. Contrary to um, maybe what some Christians believe about giving and money is that there, there is no dollar amount or percentage given to Christians in the New Testament church to know whether or not we are giving in generous ways. Um, some people are drawn to that idea of the tithe. That was an Old Testament thing. means a tenth or 10%. Um, we don't have that standard in the New Testament. What we have a standard for that Jesus gives us is a standard of sacrifice. That when Jesus came, he didn't give a tenth. When Jesus came, he made a sacrifice. And to apply that principle for us in giving is that we can know we're generous when it hurts a bit. And so for you, that might be 10%. If you've been giving for a while, 10% is, is a decent maybe starting point. But I can tell you, if you're not giving anything to anyone, 10% is going to hurt maybe too much. And so your first step might be just 5%. In fact, if, if we go by statistical standards, uh, in the United States, and this is from, I think, a 2017 study, Americans give about 2% as a whole. Christians uh, in the church end up giving a little bit more, 2.5 to 3.3%. And so for those of you who might be in that category of uh, 2.5 to 3.5 or so, maybe bumping it up to 5, that's where it'll actually start to hurt a bit. For others who are wealthy by the world standards, and a lot of us are, 10% might just be the start and every year we end up trying to improve not just the amount that we give, but the percentage that we give. I know that we are a culture that does not like to talk about money things. Uh, on the elder team, none of the elders know who gives at Keystone or how much they give at Keystone. Everything financially is kept as confidential as possible. We don't know how many people are giving at Keystone. We don't know what the average gift is at Keystone. We don't know how you spend your money. And I think there's a part of that that's dangerous. Because I know some people will want to quote maybe a verse back in Matthew 6, 3, where it says, well, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is giving. And we say, well, I got to keep that private, except for when it comes to letting Uncle Sam or my accountant know. I'll let them know how much I give because then I can get more uh, money, which sounds greedy, doesn't it? Uh, to say, I'm only going to let certain people know if they can give me money back. Money comes with a blindfold or greed comes with a blindfold. We are easily deceived. And if no one is knowing how we spend our money, we might be dying alone, being suffocated alone. And so my encouragement for you is to let someone know. It does not need to be an elder. Let a friend know. Let a family member know. Let somebody you know know. I, I know that um, that verse is quoted. Don't let your right hand know. And you, so you might feel guilty about letting someone know. The, the purpose of that verse is to have you not be self-righteous and boast. Because if you give a lot, then you might feel important or you might want other people to know that you're important because you've given this great sum. Okay, guard yourself from self-righteousness by not going to just anybody, but pick someone who's not going to judge you or 
go to someone who's going to realize they know who you are and not think you're better because you're giving more. There, there was part of me that wants to share um, exactly what I give in some ways to, to help, to give you a pattern to follow, to give you maybe uh, some aspirations. I remember hearing uh, someone preach with some specifics one time, uh, and it was helpful for me to know, wow, that's what someone's giving. Um, if you want to know specifics about what I give, how I try to be generous with my money, what my amounts are and percentages, shoot me an email and I will let you know. I'm happy uh, to just share that, uh, but I don't want to do so in any way that you might think that I'm better than you. I do not think that, and so I don't want to boast in generosity. But what I want to do is I want to help you recognize that whatever your giving standard is, it might be able to be improved. And so I'll give you some general categories of how I arrange it in my budget. Uh, My YNAB budget uh, has a charitable giving category. And then within that, there are several subcategories. One uh, is the Keystone General Fund. I believe in the ministry of Keystone. And so I support Keystone's ministries and all of the ministries of Keystone. That's my largest and most faithful category. But then I also have Keystone... um, miscellaneous funds or um, special funds. That would be like our compassion ministry, our missions ministry, our debt reduction fund uh, to help pay down debt. Uh, I have money that's given out every month towards those categories. Underneath charitable giving is not just for Keystone, but I also support some missionaries, uh, also support some nonprofits. Uh, Most of those nonprofits are Christian nonprofits uh, like Hope International or uh, Water Street. But it Sometimes it's just ministries that are producing the common good uh, that I want to get behind. Uh, When I lived in Lancaster City, uh, I gave money to the Lancaster Alliance to help uh, make a better neighborhood in my community. Those would be charitable giving categories. The last one in that is what I just call label extra. Uh, There are some years where my expenses are less than what I anticipated at the beginning of the year, and I find that I have more money to give at the end of the year than I expected. Uh, And so whether that's for the extra Uh, Extraordinary Give campaign in November, uh, where I'll give extra. Uh, Sometimes it is just giving cash to someone who needs help, uh, or it is giving, writing a check to somebody who's uh, doing an adoption or going on to GoFundMe. Not all of the extra category is tax deductible. It's okay to give and be generous, even if you're not getting credit for it. Uh, And so I've just got this extra category in there uh, where I can be generous out of. That's my main category of giving, but I also use the scriptures to consider how can I be a generous steward of God's? And so I look to see how did God instruct the Old Testament church to to give? Um, He had several categories. One was giving to the temple. Um, One was leaving the gleanings around your field, not harvesting as much as you could possibly harvest uh, so that the poor could be cared for, giving a tithe to the poor every three years. Um, And an interesting category, he actually had people set giving aside for celebrations. And so I have two other categories in addition to my charitable giving. One is gifts. And the other I just call generosity. Gifts would be things like birthdays, Christmas. Um, Christians should be good gift givers, not stingy gift givers. And so in order to be a good, generous steward in giving gifts, uh, I've got a budget for it. This general, generous category is, is just me wanting to be hospitable. When I have people over, throw parties, uh, I, I I budget money for parties in a biblical sense. 
And I want to be generous with those who are hosting. So when I'm going out with friends, uh, we're having uh, dinner together, I might pick up the tab for the whole table and pull it out of my generous budget category. All of those things are related to money, but if you're thinking, Brandon, I just don't have money to be generous with, maybe instead of just thinking about your treasure, you think about your time and talents as well. You can live as generous stewards of your time by serving, spending extra time with somebody, by using the talents that God has given you to serve and be beneficial to other people, whether that's helping out with our compassion ministry or just helping out with your neighbor. You can live as someone who's generous with their words by providing encouragement and gratitude. The thing is, once money has lost its grip on you, you look forward to finding ways for you to experience the joy of being generous. And so I want to pray for us as we dismiss that, that God would help us to represent his kingdom by embracing our riches in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we believe that you have blessed us to be a blessing. And yes, you've also instructed us to take care and be on our guard against all covetousness. This desire for money and all of the things that money can buy to be our Lord, our master, our God, to deliver to us things that would make us feel important or cool that would provide us security or safety. Father, I pray that as we unpack more and more of the riches of Christ, it might not be a difficult decision. That we would see the riches of Christ to be of far superior quality. Help us to treasure Christ and all that he is for us so that we might not just manage our greedy impulses, but kill them at their root. I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.